0: It is a thrill to be here, Um, it's been a year, and to see so many new people. This is exciting, this is great, this is the hand of God at work in this church, and all things being equal, uh, if we come back next year, we're going to be doing two services, because you're going to outgrow this place in no time at all, and uh, it's exciting, and um, I hope if uh, if I'm invited back again, and I haven't preached yet, so it's still up in the air. Uh, I hope if I'm invited back again, you have more comfortable chairs. So, <laughs> somebody shake somebody. How, let me let's be honest. We're Christians here, right? How many really like love these pews and love to sit in them for an hour? Okay, I think you should leave two in the back. So, could be worse. It could be worse. I've been in worse. I've been to words. I've preached in churches in the Congo where it was stumps and whatever piece of lumber they could find to sit across the stumps. And you didn't dare scoot on there. You just sat down and <laughs> moved, didn't move. So, uh, no, we're, uh, it is a, it's a, a beautiful building and uh, we're just so grateful what God has done uh, for you guys and giving you this facility. And this is an amazing thing, and, but it's more amazing, more than the facility, it's amazing to see the body of Christ here and people coming. And I'm so happy for you. And I'm happy that you have the pastor that you have. Uh, I really do love Andy and Priscilla. Uh, mostly I love Emmett and Victor and Leon and Angelina. Uh, but we uh, love these folks and, uh, and just want to see God's best for them. And I'm so thankful that you're here. And I hope you love your pastor and his family as much as I do. And, and I think there will... I know they're going to serve you well, so and, and I already have. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Most of you know some of you come from churches where their gospel has been very watered down. I'm sure you hear I've heard already this week from some of you that it's similar things that I hear in my church where people come and they say things along the lines of, we didn't know we were starving until we came here. And that's not a, a s- meant to be exalting our church, it's just a commentary on churches in general in our area that are not preaching the Word of God. They're not preaching Christ, they're not preaching the true gospel. And I suppose this watering down of the gospel, as I look back in church history, and was done as a way to win people to Christ. Many pastors and evangelists and church workers saw deep commitment to Christ and the commitment of the gospel as a barrier for people to be saved. For others, it was an attempt to point to salvation by grace rather than works. We couldn't require any effort of any human beings because if we required something of that, we'd be kind of promoting a, a salvation by works, and we didn't want to do that. So we just emphasize salvation by grace and speak of Christianity in very simplistic terms and weed out words like commitment and sacrifice The evangelistic intent was to get people to say what became commonly known as the sinner's prayer. If you could just get them to say that sinner's prayer, then then you got them in the club. They could get their membership card, and they got their fire insurance, and that was really, that's what it was about. A relationship with Christ could come somewhere down the line. Salvation was presented as a means of keeping, keeping people out of hell rather than a means of surrendering to the will of God. The consequences of this we've been experienced over the last few decades, was a lot of unsaved people in churches who happened to have said a prayer. They claimed to be Christians, but they remained lost. They thought they had fire insurance, but they had no forgiveness. There was no submission to Christ in his lordship. Small churches like this would report literally dozens and sometimes hundreds of people professing faith in Christ in the last year, but there was no evidence in the church that those people got saved or those people were still around. To justify this outcome, preachers began to promote a, a two-fold response to God. The first response was to say a sinner's prayer, to get in the club. The second was, somewhere down the line, you may or may not submit to Jesus as Lord. So in other words, you could be saved and have your name written down in glory, but you didn't necessarily commit your life to Christ. We use terms like dedicated. Well, I got saved in... 1971, but I dedicated my life to the Lord in 1984. You know, Things like that. Those who dedicated themselves to God became next-level Christians. They went from apprentice Christian to journeyman Christian. Entry level to second tier. While the vast majority of those who made professions of faith under this type of teaching never became next-level Christians. Churches continued to affirm that they had relationships with Christ, and I can't tell you how many parents, and I was as a youth pastor for a number of years, and I can't tell you how many parents I sat with over those years who said, yes, my child made a profession of faith when they were in children's church at age eight, but now they don't walk with the Lord, and you know, they rebelled against the Lord at 18. They're now 38 years old, but I'm just thankful they got saved when they were eight and they they have no interest in the things of God. They haven't had any interest in the things of God for over 20 years and you're thinking that a prayer they said when they were 8 was at least that got them into heaven. The biggest problem with this type of evangelism is it's unbiblical. And it fools people into thinking they are believers and they're thinking they're Christians when in fact they're not. My own father was one of those who claimed to be a Christian but couldn't tell you why. Promoting this shallow view of salvation requires pastors and teachers and evangelists to ignore or reinterpret significant portions of the Bible. The Bible never teaches that one can be saved by saying a prayer. The Bible never teaches that you can receive salvation at one point, and some point in the future, submit to Christ as Lord. There's no separation in this. Salvation requires, biblical salvation requires, a complete and immediate surrender. Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says, Jesus was saying to them all, uh, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He did not say, if anyone wants to come after me, he may or may not take up his cross at some point and follow me for some period of time. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come over me, come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, he said, you, If you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, you cannot be my disciple. Obviously, he's not talking about hate because somebody says, I'm halfway there, I hate my brother. Uh, it's he's not talking about hate he's the, the way that we would understand it he's talking about the love that you have for god so eclipses your love for everyone else that it appears that it's hate luke chapter 6 verse 46 jesus said ask the question why do you call me lord lord and do not do what i say we use that term lord Sometimes we don't even think about what it means. It means that he is our sovereign ruler. If he is the Lord, then we are his servants. Matthew chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. Jesus said, so you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus isn't promoting works salvation. He is saying that those who truly do the will of my Father are giving evidence that they are believers. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot confess Jesus as Savior and not confess him as Lord. You must confess him as Lord to be saved. If you do not confess him as Lord, he is not your Savior. Now, that wouldn't be a very popular message in many churches around America today. As many people want to say, Jesus is my Savior, he's, but he's not my Lord. I met with a pastor a number of years ago. We were having lunch together, and he said, you know, I would, like, would you pray for the people in my church? They love God, but they don't believe in Jesus. I said, then they don't love God. If they don't believe in his Son, they don't love him. They, believe they love a God of their own making. They love an idol. There's no place in Scripture that tells us we can receive the gift of salvation by receiving Jesus as Savior and then someplace down the line commit ourselves to Him. Jesus is your Lord. He's your Master. He's your Ruler. He's your King. And thus your Savior. Or He is none of those things to you, and thus he's your enemy and he's your judge. There's always been a higher requirement, a biblical requirement for Christians than many preachers are comfortable preaching because we're afraid we're going to put too much on people, require too much of people. John chapter 13 marks the beginning of a five-chapter section It takes place in the upper room. We call it the upper room discourse. It's the night that Jesus would be betrayed. To give you an idea, the first 12 chapters of the book of John cover a three-year period of time of Jesus' ministry. The next five chapters cover dinner. That's how significant that those five chapters are. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write twelve chapters to cover twelve, or to cover three years, and five chapters to cover a few hours. And what makes these few hours, what makes this dinner so significant, is this is the last time Jesus is going to have with his disciples before he goes to the cross. After this dinner, the next conversation that he has with the disciples will take place after his resurrection. So he wants to pour into them as much as he can during this period of time. The sheer amount of space devoted to this dinner ought to demand our attention. Love saturates the five chapters. In fact, it bookends the chapters. If you look at verse 1... Chapter 13, verse 1. says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And if you go to the last verse of chapter 17, verse 26, it says Jesus is praying what we call a high priestly prayer. And He says to the Father, I have made Your name known to them and will make it known to them so that the love which... With which you have loved me, I may may be in them, and I in them. It bookends, this idea of love bookends this whole evening. In less than 24 hours of this dinner, Jesus will be wrapped in grave clothes and placed in a dark, dank tomb. A stone would be rolled in front of it, sealed up. His disciples would be scattered, believing that everything they had hoped for over the last three years was over. But before those events unfold, important lessons are going to be taught. And among them is we must love each other enough to be servants. We must love each other enough to be servants. Christlike like love requires servants' humility. Verse 1 again, back in chapter 13, verse 1, the night uh, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus was knowing that His hour was coming, that He would depart from this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. So the backdrop is Passover. It's that time that the Jews would Gather in Jerusalem and celebrate this most solemn feast day, when they that commemorates the time that the Jews exited Egypt. The night before that exodus, they would stand around the table, fully clothed their hats on, their coats on, ready to run out, and they would eat this Passover meal quickly. It, it, it was this lamb dish and other things, and the lamb that they had taken and slit its throat earlier that day and taken the blood and wiped it on the doorposts of their homes in Egypt. And God sent his death angel over the land, and we saw the blood. He passed over that house and went on to the next house. And if the blood wasn't there, the firstborn died. And they were to commemorate this year after year after year. And what this all would point to is Jesus Christ ultimately as the Passover lamb, the one whose blood must cover us in order to be saved. The events that will take place shortly Judas will betray Jesus, he'll be arrested, he'll be taken to a mock trial before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. He'll be falsely accused, he'll be abused. He'll be abandoned by the disciples. He will hear shouts of those he came to save. Perhaps some who were healed by him later the next day yelling out, crucify, crucify. Even Pilate, the the heathen, Gentile ruler could find no guilt in Jesus and wanted to release him and would bring him out and try to multiple times to release Jesus and the crowd would just get louder and louder. Crucify! Crucify! He would die an agonizing death on the cross. And with all of that looming in the the very near future, in just the next 18 hours... The love that Christ has for His disciples supersedes all of those things. All of the things that could occupy His mind. All of the things that could draw away His attention. And He focuses on pouring a lesson into His disciples. Having loved His own, He loved them to the end. That statement, He loved them to the end, could mean that He loved them to the end of His life. If it does, it means that his love maintained for them all the way through the cross. Or it can mean, and probably does, he loved them his own with a complete and thorough, comprehensive love. He loved them to the nth degree. And that's a much better option because the love that Jesus has for his disciples didn't change after the cross. He loved them after the cross just as much. His love lacks nothing and never falls short. His love is never self-centered and never crowded out by other things, even important things. Verse 2 says, during supper the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon to betray him. I want you to remember that Jesus that Judas is in the room. Jesus or John rather gives us the extreme contrast that existed in that room at that moment. The comprehensive love of Jesus mentioned in verse 1 is juxtaposed against the betrayal spirit of Judas in verse 2. Judas is going to leave and betray Jesus in just a few hours. Verse 3 and 4. Jesus knowing that the hour or that the Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from the from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. As the disciples are all in this upper room ready to celebrate this meal, Jesus gets up and he begins doing something that was either done by oneself or done by a slave. Common courtesy in that culture in that day to provide water for your guests when they came into your home to either wash their own feet or to have a slave wash the feet for your guests. They had dirt roads and dry area and open sandals. It would be more comfortable for your guests to have clean feet when they walked into your house became culturally significant part of the society. It was an accepted, expected show of hospitality. In fact, the failure to wash somebody's feet or provide a way for them to wash their own feet was an insult. In Luke chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to his house for lunch And you remember the story as Jesus is there reclining on the ground by the table to have lunch. The woman comes in and weeps at the feet of Jesus and uses her hair to wash his feet. And Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, is thinking in his heart, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was and he'd chase her out of here. Jesus, knowing what Simon was thinking after the woman washed his feet and kissed his feet, he turned to Simon and said, Simon, I've got something to ask you. He says, go ahead. He says, who loves more, the one who's forgiven a little or the one who's forgiven a lot? Well, how do you, the answer is obvious, the one who's forgiven a lot. And Jesus says, that's right. And I'm telling you, this woman loves God more than you because when I came in, you didn't give me a hug and you didn't give me any water for my feet. In other words, you didn't even show me basic hospitality And here she's washed her feet with her tears and kissed my feet and dried it with her hair. See, Simon the Pharisee was actually trying to insult Jesus by not washing his feet. So before the Passover meal begins, the 12 had already taken their place at the table. And in that culture at that time, the food would be in the center and you would lay down on your left side, your head towards the middle, your feet stretched out sort of like spokes of a wagon wheel. And as all the disciples are laying there and Jesus is laying there and the food is prepared, Jesus stops. He gets up before they start eating. He takes off his outer garment, grabs a towel, wraps it around his waist. There's a special pan that is used for washing feet. It's got a little rise in the middle of it for your foot to sit on. There's a special drain in the bottom. Jesus pours water in this pan, takes a rag, and walks over to one of the disciples and gets on his knees takes the foot pulls the sandal off takes that rag and pours water over the foot can you imagine in that room deathly quiet the only thing you can hear is the trickle of water Because Jesus is washing their feet. He takes that towel and He carefully dries off of the feet. And He dries between the toes and gets all the water off of the feet. And then He moves on to the next disciple. Now the disciples know who Jesus is. Many of them have already confessed him to be Lord. They believe he's the Messiah, the son of David. They believe he's the rightful king of Judah. In fact, just a few weeks earlier, Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain of transfiguration and they watched Jesus' glory appear and God the Father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. They knew who he was. They knew he's the king. They know he's the son of God, but he looks anything, doesn't look anything like a king at this moment. He looks like a slave. He's doing the job of a slave, and not just any slave. That was a job that was reserved for the lowest of the slaves. In fact, Gentiles who owned Jewish and Gentile slaves would never let their Gentile slaves wash people's feet. They would only make the Jewish slaves do it because they felt like it was too, even that was too lowly of a job for a Gentile slave. Again, John shows us the contrast that's in that room. Verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe the towel, wipe them with the towel with which he girded himself. From coming from God to being on the floor washing feet. The creator and sustainer of the universe. Now I'm removing the sandals off the disciples' feet and washing the dirt off of them. The one who commanded the winds to stop, demons to come out, healed all manner of sickness, raised the dead as washing feet. Listen, this isn't like taking your, the coats of your guests who come into your house and laying them over an ottoman. This is more like Well, it's more like washing their feet. It's more like having somebody come into your house and you set them down in your favorite chair and you get on your hands and knees in front of them and you pull their shoe off and you remove their sock and you pick the sock lint out from between their toes and you wash their feet and you dry their feet. Can you imagine yourself doing that? Can you imagine having that done? Well, the silence of the stunned disciples is broken when Jesus moves over to wash to the feet of Peter. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter, and and he said that Simon said, Lord, do you wash my feet? The emphasis in the Greek is on the word you. We would say it like this, you, you wash my feet? You, the one that I saw on the mountain to be transfigured, the one that I heard from the voice of God was your son. You wash my feet. The implication of Peter is uh, this task is beneath you, Jesus. You are. This is not a task fit for you. Jesus didn't say, well, somebody's got to do it. Nobody else is volunteering. Jesus states this simple fact in verse 7. What I do, you do not realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. Peter, you don't get it yet. You will. It'll make sense to you later. But it wasn't later. It was now. And Peter is Peter. Peter. In verse eight, Peter said to him, "Never shall you wash my feet." It is the strongest, emphatic no available in the Greek language. "Ume," ain't no way you're washing my feet. Peter didn't say, "Oh no, 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 don't wash, no, don't wash my feet." He said, "No." You're not washing my feet. I won't allow it. There's no way. No way, Jesus, you're going to act like a slave to me. Jesus is about to teach an important lesson here. There's a greater lesson, and within that greater lesson, Jesus offers this faith lesson. And he says in the rest of verse 8, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. One's not cleansed by Christ. He has no relationship with Christ. That's what Jesus is adding, this faith lesson. If Jesus has not cleansed you from all righteousness, unrighteousness, you have no part with him. But Peter wants his part with Jesus he still doesn't understand, so verse 9, Simon Peter says, Lord, then, not, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Hey, if washing the feet makes me have a relationship with you, then hey, what? it'd be better if you wash my hands and, and my hair's a little greasy too. You might take care of that. Jesus says in verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. But you are not clean and you are clean, but not all of you, and he knew who was betraying him. That's the reason he said not all of you are clean. The faith lesson is once a person has been cleansed by Jesus Christ, he doesn't have to be cleansed again. It doesn't, you don't, you can repent of your sins that, that one time for initial salvation. The future repentance is just a, a cleansing. It's a relational repentance. We don't lose the relationship with our Father. We just become strained because of our daily sin. So we confess that and get that cleaned off. That's the symbolism of washing the dirt off the feet there is getting rid of that daily sin. While washing the disciples' feet does include a lesson about the difference between salvation and progressive sanctifications, that's not Jesus' main point. It's important to realize that earlier that day, that very same day, the disciples were arguing with each other about which one of them would be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I think Peter should be. No, I think Andrew should be. No, I think John's the greatest. They're arguing with each other. I'm, I'm going to be the greatest. When this kingdom comes, I'm Jesus is king, but I'm going to be second in command. We're going to be third, on and on. They're, they were arguing with him. And the humility of Jesus at that moment is a sharp rebuke to the pride of the disciples. Well, they're arguing about which one is going to be the the most important person in the kingdom next to Jesus. Jesus is on the floor washing their feet. When Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet, including Judas, by the way. He sets the pan aside, he puts on his outer garment, he lays back down on the table on the floor near the table, and he begins to teach his disciples. The first lesson was Christ like love requires humility. The second lesson is Christ like love requires a servant's mind. It requires a servant's mind. In verse 12, so when Jesus washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Pop quiz. I can see some of the disciples going, great, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. Peter's going, I got this, I got this, I know, I, I, I got it. It's time for the disciples to think. You know what I've done to you? I'm sure Peter was going, ooh, 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 ooh. Yes, Peter? You washed our feet. Jesus had done more than wash our feet. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. The two titles here, king or teacher and Lord, uh, point to Jesus' authority. He is their teacher. He's the one who's revealed truth to them. He is their Lord. He's their king. He's their sovereign ruler. And if he's their teacher, they should listen to the lessons he teaches. And if he's their Lord, they should obey his commands. In verse 14, he said, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, look at this, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The argument is from the greater to the lesser. If the greater will do it, the lesser should do it. And in case you're not sure, Jesus is the greater, we're the lesser. It's like saying, if a four-star general will peel potatoes so the troops can have dinner, then a private should peel potatoes too. Indiana Jones should also... I think it's that phone right there. I don't know whose phone that is. I tell you, if that's Silas, don't look at it. it. If the master will serve the slaves how much more should the slaves serve the master? If such a lowly task of washing the disciples' feet is not beneath our Lord, it cannot be beneath us. If Christ will humble himself to serve us, we should be more than willing to humble ourselves to serve one another. Jesus emphasized the need to be a servant in other places when James and John were to ask Jesus on a previous occasion if they could sit one on the right and one on the left in the kingdom. Matthew or Mark chapter 10 verses 44 and 45 says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. While up in Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were arguing again at a previous occasion which one of them should be the greatest. Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus said, Sitting down, he called the twelve to them and said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You want to be the leader? Be the servant. You want to be number one? Serve. It's not about how many people serve you, it's about how many people you serve. Verse 15 in our text. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Now, Jesus is not implementing here a foot-washing ordinance. We baptize, we have communion, and we wash each other's feet. The Catholic Church has tried to do that. The brethren groups have tried to do that. His point is, is not that we should set aside one day a year on our calendar where we wash one another's feet, or even one day a year where we serve other people. Jesus was making the point that we need to humble ourselves and be servants 365 days out of the year. We need to love the Lord, our God, and love his children enough to serve each other. We need to be what R. Kent Hughes calls people of the towel there is no service in God's kingdom listen to this that is beneath you there is no service in God's kingdom that is beneath you and if you think there is you have a wrong understanding of God's kingdom and certainly a wrong understanding of yourself Serving the Lord and others is not limited to Sunday morning. It's not limited to teaching opportunities. Serving one another is maybe bringing them a meal, maybe putting your arm around them and praying for them. It often includes overlooking their sin. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, Hatred stirs up wrath, but love covers all transgressions. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. It requires that we meet people where they are. You don't worry about getting your hands wet. You don't worry about getting your hands dirty. But you humbly gird yourself with a towel and do things that may be uncomfortable. You do things that may even seem beneath you. Verse 16 in our text, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Yet after another argument about which of the disciples would be the greatest, they had a few of them. Luke chapter 22, verses 25 and following, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, And they who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must be like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. If he'll serve others, certainly we must. Serving others can't be beneath us if it's not beneath Jesus. You know what bothers me as a pastor? That I have to announce needs in our church three or four times or more. That I have to stand in front of our congregation of 400 some people and say, we need somebody to watch the nursery. Here's the truth in any church. When a need is made known, we should have to do it once. And there should be a line of people that we're turning away because the need has been met. That's what should happen. Because we should all be saying, I'll serve. But Pastor, I don't feel called to do that ministry. How many people you think feel called to wash feet? It's my, it's my desire. My greatest desire in life is to wash people's feet. I just feel called to wash your feet. No one feels called to wash feet. genuine heart of a servant serves so why then does the average pastor have to beg people to serve God's church why do so many people think that God is pleased when they do the least they can do in fact we even have a, a, a statement that we use hey well it's the least I could do well, whoop-de-doo yeah, that's right. <laughs> Amen to that. We do the least we can do, and we're proud of it. Well, it's, it's the least I could do. I say that to people jokingly when, every once in a while. Well, it's the least I could do, and don't ever let anybody tell you that I didn't do the least I could do for you. In fact, you can tell everybody, I did the least that I could do for you. Hey, I, my pastor did the least he could possibly do. Wouldn't you rather? People, they did, they did the best they could do for me. The pastors and elders of this church must be servants of all. Must love one another enough to serve. Must have the mind and the heart of a servant. But if God is going to use this church in this area to reach people with the gospel, if this church is going to be a light in this community, the people who attend this church need to be servants. They need to be willing to wash feet. They need to recognize that there's nothing beneath them. Your pastor needs that. God demands it from you. Verse 17. Jesus says, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You know what it means to be a servant. And you serve, you're blessed. It's a blessing to serve. It's a blessing to do what God has asked us to do. I'll ask my staff occasionally when we have a staff meeting, Where are you serving? My youth pastor may say, Well, you know, I'm teaching the teens on Sunday. I got them on Wednesday. I'm meeting with my youth staff next week. And I'll say, That's your job. You get paid to do that. Where are you serving? My point is not to overwhelm them. My point is to help them to see other people have jobs in the church or jobs outside of church. They work 40, 50, 60 hours a week and they come into our church and they serve our people. I don't require any less of our staff. We do our jobs and we serve. We do things that are not part of our job description because we want to lead by example too. Our Lord serves, we should serve. We need to follow the example of Jesus and serve. Serve because you love God. Serve because you love people. Serve because you want to be Christ-like. Don't be concerned with what others think. Be concerned with what glorifies God. Follow the example of Jesus. What does it mean to wash one another's feet? Well, first it means to love them enough to serve them. Second, it means to consider others to be more important than yourself. Third, it means to humble yourself. It also means to present your body as a living sacrifice. It means to take every opportunity that God gives you to serve. It means that you emulate the humility and the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your church needs it. Your pastor needs it. Your community needs it. God demands it. You know, we hang crosses on the walls of our churches and wear them on chains around our neck to remind us of what Jesus did for us. And those are good reminders. You know what we ought to do? We ought to tie towels around our waists to remind us what Jesus told us to do. Let's be people of the towel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your Son to serve us in such a way. Father, may we be people of the towel. May we grab a towel and wrap it around our waist and serve like You told us to serve for Your glory and the good of Your people. That the world may know that we belong to You. You are the one, the only way of eternal life. Father, that You change lives. You change hearts. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, As their Lord, may You show them their need for saving faith. Be they a child, be they uh, an adult, Father, may You open up their eyes to this truth that they come to saving faith on this very day, becoming a servant of Christ. Father, for those who may be thinking that the Christian faith is all about what You can do for us, Father, may You change their minds as they see that we are to be servants of all. Father, may You glorify Yourself in raising up men and women of the towel. Father, people will serve one another and that will be a sweet-smelling savor, a sweet-smelling offering to You, a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to You. Father, may they see, may they see what will happen if we just obey you. If we just love you enough and love others the way we're supposed to. Father, that we desire you to be known in this world. I thank you for what you've done in this church Even this last year, it is so evident to have Your hand upon this church. May that not cease. May it not be slowed. But Father, may You bless this church and continue to grow it as people seek to serve You and serve one another. Father, this area needs the Gospel. It needs a beacon. Use this church. Use its people. Put them in the path of those who need to hear the Gospel and give them the courage to serve in such a way that they will show the truth. Father, bless Andy and Priscilla. Give Andy strength and wisdom. Guide him as he prepares and teaches and leads. Father, the things he does are pure and right and holy in Your sight. Keep his family strong, his marriage strong. Father, don't let Satan come in and undermine the work that You're doing here. Father, keep Your people faithful that they would not be a distraction to what You're doing here. Draw attention away from the truth of Your Word. Father, may You glorify Yourself. In this church, its people, for your glory, they're good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.